Welcome to the Radical Imagination Podcast, where we dive into the stories and solutions that are fueling change. I'm your host, Angela Glover Blackwell. Every single day, artificial intelligence and algorithms are used to make life-changing decisions on behalf of people. Yet, these formulas face little oversight. From discriminatory hiring systems to predictive policing, crime sentencing, or access to loans, algorithms often exacerbate existing biases and inequality in our society. In today's episode, we look into the impact that AI is having on people's lives and the brave efforts led by Black women, computer scientists, and activists who are working to transform algorithms to help fight inequality and inequity instead. For more on this, we're joined by Radietta Bebe. She's an assistant professor of computer science at the University of California, Berkeley, and co-founder of Black in AI. Radiette, welcome to Radical Imagination. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Give us some examples of how algorithms can impact people's lives. You know, in the public sphere, which is the space where I spend a lot of time, Education is obviously big and assignment of students to schools is one example, but it impacts people's lives in housing. If you're applying for, say, to rent an apartment, say in New York City, your landlord could be using an algorithm to decide whether you're going to get that apartment or not. It's used in credit scores, of course. It's used in job applications. We know that people are using algorithms for resume screening. It's used in so many different ways in criminal justice. It's being used to investigate. It's being used to police. There's predictive policing that happens. There's risk assessment tools to decide whether someone's going to be let out on bail. Uh, It's being used to investigate, like facial recognition. It's also being used to prosecute. There are algorithms that are being used to actually decide whether someone is guilty or not, and uh, they're being used out of their original scope. And so they are sometimes getting things wrong. So as we speak, there are people in prison who did not commit the crimes that the algorithm, you know, falsely kind of directed us into thinking that they did. And so you're in the situation where people could end up being wrongfully convicted for crimes that they didn't commit because some algorithm or some software is being used outside of the original scope for which it was planned. To me, that's the scariest thing that could happen. And of course, you know, our lives are now online. And so search engines use algorithms, obviously, but really anything that you are doing in the public space, which is where I do a lot of my work, a lot of decision making that used to be done by humans is now kind of being moved to being automated in some form. And one of the things you didn't mention that I think about a lot is that it's used to determine whether or not you can get a loan, which is so important for where we don't show up as people of color because of the racial wealth gap. We don't have a lot of history, don't own a lot of things. And people use different proxies. People use people's zip codes to make a decision, right? So it's not even what your credit history is or whatever it is that you're bringing to the table. They can also use your zip code. And if you live in a Black neighborhood, it automatically holds you back. And so there's a great deal of poorly conceived uses of algorithms out there that are doing a great deal of injustice. A lot of these things do sound scary because where you hope that some person, a compassionate person, is taking your particulars into account. To find out that this is all just happening with algorithms is unsettling. But go a little deeper and talk about how they disproportionately impact communities of color. I'm one of the co-founders of Black and AI with my colleague, Tim Nikabru. And we, as part of Black and AI, we have this uh, technical workshop series 
I think it was two years ago, we had a keynote by this man, a black guy, his name is Terrence Wilkerson. He'd been wrongfully convicted for crimes that he didn't commit. And in some situations, there was sort of like an, an algorithm that was involved. And we talked to him. He gave this talk and he gave this wonderful Q&A. And something that he said really stuck with me. He said, it's not even about what's right and wrong. It's about you know my humanity, essentially. right? I want to be judged as a human by a human. Because what he was saying was, look, you know, I'm... I'm this person, I have kids, I am an entrepreneur, I have, you know, he is a person, he's bringing his whole being into the stand when he's in front of a judge. And to have that being replaced by this not really accountable algorithm that just doesn't look at you as a human being, but rather looks at you as a bunch of data points is an extremely dehumanizing process. It was really interesting to me how he emphasized that he wasn't even talking about the outcome. He was talking about the process, right? He was not even happy about the process. And I think this very closely mirrors this country in which we live, right? This is the dehumanization of Black people, the injustice that Black people have had to suffer is not news in this country. And so to see that injustice being automated, building these tools without input from communities that are getting the shorter end of that stick, building these tools by people who are never going to be negatively impacted by it is unfortunately unsurprising, but we are entering a really scary phase of what's to come. Before we continue the conversation with Radiette, we're going to introduce you to Terrence Wilkerson, one example of algorithmic bias and injustice she brings up. Terrence got caught up in the criminal legal system and later was flagged as high risk by a bail-related automated system years after having been falsely accused of robbery. I sat down with Terrence for a phone interview where he shared more about his journey through the criminal legal system. For years, Terrence successfully fought against accusations that could have left him behind bars for much longer than they did. Terrence, welcome to Radical Imagination. Thanks for having me. Where did you grow up? Paint us a picture of what it was like to be in New York in those years. I have to say exciting and entertaining because I grew up around the Harlem area, the Apollo you know, area, right around the corner from the Apollo. So there was a lot of things going on and scary things at the same time and, you know, nothing too drastic until I got to the Bronx. So you got to prepare yourself. And I wasn't prepared. So when I got to the Bronx, I noticed there was a lot of junkies and bad looking buildings and a lot of robberies and murders going on then. What do you remember about the day when you were first arrested in 1998? I went out with a friend. We was um, doing a little marijuana joint at the time. So the cops had kind of pulled up. So I plucked the marijuana joint to the ground. And they wound up finding it. So we both got arrested. So we were sitting in the cells and I was thinking like, well, this ain't about nothing. We'll be out. It's just a marijuana joint. So when I went to go see my lawyer, my lawyer, he says, oh, yeah, you're getting out for this. I said, I know. He said, yeah, but you got a problem. There's two detectives waiting for you. So I says, for what? And he says, armed robbery. That's when things kind of went haywire for me. From a, a Marrow Juana joint, I wound up being charged with two different armed robberies. I went in front of the judge and they said, uh, you, you're released, but you got to be 
detained by these two detectives. They're gonna take you down and ask you some questions. Next thing you know, I'm sitting in front of a lineup. I was new at the time, so I didn't know what this was about. So I guess I was called a filling of people who were suspected of robbing someone. And I guess somebody pointed me and said I was the one who did it. Next thing you know, I had to go in front of a judge and I believe the judge gave me a bail, which was like $35,000. So I wound up being sent to Rikers Island to fight my case. It seems like I was in a losing battle. So I wound up pleading to something I didn't do and received one or three years. How did you end up coming to the conclusion that this was the only way that you could get your freedom back to plead guilty? When they woke me up that morning and said I had court, which I didn't even know I had court, I was in that courtroom. I've never been in a courtroom at no 8, 7, 30, 8 o'clock in the morning. I ain't even know the courtroom is open there. But I was called into the courtroom with the judge and my lawyer. And I didn't have no family members in the audience at the time because it wasn't time for court. So the judge says, um, the jury is right outside this door here. You can either plead guilty to the one and three or you take it at trial, take your chances at trial, which was offering me, I believe, 25 or something, I'm not sure. I was pretty young at the time, not even, I think like 18, 20, not too sure. Once I looked back and I seen nobody was there, I didn't know what to do. So I just kind of cried, bust out. I poked my little chest up and and said, I'll take the one or three. And I wound up going back upstate for another year and a half for that crime I never committed. Terrence, how did this experience change your life? Oh, man. It, it, from there, it kept me isolated from people. Uh, I don't trust no one. It's hard to trust anyone. Now, I understand that that's the beginning of your involvement with the criminal justice system. What happened the second time that you were arrested? Now, this time is different because now I'm actually not on the street. I'm in my little sister's home cleaning. So I figure right now is the time I could go outside, house is clean. Now I would like a cigar. So I goes right outside my building. Right on the side of my building is a grocery store. So I went to the window, but it felt like, you know, there's a lot of people behind me. So I turns around and there's a crowd. I see like police and but I ain't paying no mind, nothing to do with me. Got the dust and went right scoop right back in the building. Three minutes later, not a knock. All you hear is boom, boom. They kick the door, walks in, looks at me and says, what's your name? Now, right there off gate, I'm already prepared for this. Like, first of all, I'm not telling you nothing. And first of all, what are you even doing in here? That was my exact words, sitting on my chair. Him and his partner walked right to me, stood me up, took me out the house, stood me in front of the stoop I just finished walking off of and told me to look straight. Next thing you know, I'm being placed inside a police car. Next thing you know, I'm being driven to the precinct. Next thing you know, I'm in a cell. I still don't know what's going on. Finally, the officer walked by, I said, all right, somebody gotta tell me what I'm in here for. 
he won't tell me. He passes me the paper. Here we go again. Armed robbery. I just robbed somebody for $600 and a cell phone. Right from there, once he told me that in that cell, the cries is over. I, I, I've been stopped crying in 98. So now I'm just pissed. But when I went in front of that judge, the judge said, okay, what evidence do you have against him? The um, DA says none, Your Honor. We don't have nothing at the time. They're supposed to have a cell phone and money, nothing on my possession. They say they don't have nothing at the time. And the judge said, okay, Bell said that's such and such. The same thing. Okay, back in the cell I go. So now I'm crying. I'm being shipped back to Rikers Island to fight the case again. And here you are again. But it was $25,000 bail. Right. In a previous conversation with your lawyer, they explained that this time you were being considered as high risk of not showing up for your court date or of committing another crime. That high-risk label was put on you by what is known as an algorithmic risk assessment tool. And that tool or software used your false criminal history to make this determination. How does that make you feel? Oh, it put me in a hospital. I, I, I take several now messing with that second case. That's, that's the bottom line to that. I just went through it. And I'm not, I haven't been in one single bit of a trouble since 98 until that problem. Hmm. And I'm still being judged. I'm still getting a bail set. I'm still considered not coming to court. How am I not coming to court if I don't have a court case to go to? But you still got me as a high risk of not coming. And okay, I'm confused. I, I have a computer or contemplating on how how much of a risk I am. That don't even make sense. Why doesn't it make sense? All right. Say if you um you went off for the first time I got arrested in my whole entire life. And say I didn't get arrested in, say, 10 years after that or whatever the case, that thing must still be considering me a high risk. That's not, that's not fair. You had kids. You had a job. You were interacting with your sister and your family and your brother. You had been through something that wasn't right in the first place, and you had made adjustments. Does the computer know any of that? And still being judged the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Back to that algorithm thing that's judging. How, how are you going to see a person you can't even see? Who's programming these things? Uh, how is being programmed? I don't get it. I stays in house, inside. I don't walk the streets alone, nothing. And when I do, I make sure I'm protected by cameras. Everything is a calculated step now. I stay close to my family. Anybody tell you, they tell me, where you going? All right, make sure you go straight to the house. Call me when you get there. These are the things I got to go through every single day now just to keep me safe. Terrence, thank you for speaking with us. You're welcome. Terrence Wilkerson is a father and survivor of the criminal legal system. Terrence and his lawyers fought his case and the robbery charges against him were dismissed in an acquittal by jury trial. Coming up on Radical Imagination, we continue the conversation with computer scientist, professor, and co-founder of Black and AI, Radiette Abebe. Stay with us. More when we come back.
And we're back. When we left our conversation with computer science professor Radietta Bebe, she talked about the impact of faulty algorithms on the lives of black and brown people. Now, let's shift our attention to the radical work she and others are doing to transform the use of AI for social good. So you're getting right into why it is so important that we really aggressively have more diversity in the field. Talk about the diversity, how we get there, and what the impacts are when we have it. Right. Yeah. So I think a lot of times we think of diversity stuff as a sort of afterthought, right? We've already decided what our criteria is for admitting undergraduate students, graduate students, faculty, whatever it is, you know, you've, we've already come up with a bunch of things. And then we kind of look at the outcome and we say, oof, there's not that many Black people. I guess we should probably think about diversity, right? It becomes an afterthought. And that's just been detrimental to everyone. It really, really has been. I really think that every single person has is losing as a result of this. And so I think it's no surprise that the area where I've had the most success in terms of just being able to articulate a vision that I think is compelling and that others also uh, might agree, it's not a surprise that that's also the area that's impacted me and my communities directly, right? Because to me, it's not something I check in at 9 a.m. and then I leave at 5 p.m. It's not a 9 to 5 job. This is my life. This is my people's life. And so I understand better as a result what is going wrong here and how are people being impacted by it on the ground, right? And so I think this recognition that if we artificially constrain ourselves to a subset of society, we're also going to constrain the perspectives that would be on the table, the input and the ideas and the innovative potential solutions that are on the table. And I think it's a cruel decision to sort of artificially shut out a bunch of people in this way. And so it makes sense to me that people who have to live these problems are also the ones that are for whom there's a lot at stake and maybe actually have, you know, very rich perspective on what would be the way forward. Now you are talking about the disconnect between the lived experience and people who are researching and understanding and thinking about artificial intelligence and algorithms. But there's a different disconnect, and that's the one between people who introduce and deploy algorithms and those who regulate. The disconnect between the policymakers and the field. Uh, You've been working on that, too, with the California Policy Lab, right? Um, I'm working with Berkeley folks, you know, what would it look like for us to train, let's say, graduate students in computer science and AI who are also doing policy-driven work? What would it look like to link them up with the California Policy Lab, right? And to have that be part of their training, not just something that they do after they finish their graduate degrees. And so there's a lot of work to be done here about how to create those links because we have those links with industry, but we don't necessarily have them with policy and we need to do that. I sometimes wonder, even though marginalized communities really can be hurt through the use of algorithms, do you find that there are uses that can actually fight inequality and inequity? Yes, yes. And that is where I come in, right? So I think that, yes, algorithms are harming people and we should stop that. But what would it look like if the field of algorithms was really being led by marginalized communities? How would we use it? Do we build the same things that have been built or do we build something different? And that's, I think, where I feel an immense amount of opportunity and honestly, even optimism. There are 
a lot of decisions that we've made about criminal justice, independent of algorithms, that are very dehumanizing. What's happening is that you take this problem and then you basically put it on steroids, right? When you add a sort of automated system to it. And so I think people are coming to this collective recognition that there were these issues of discrimination and injustice and inequality that predate any automated system and we've made it worse. And I think we should fix that. But also, actually, we don't totally understand exactly how inequality and discrimination always works. And so there is an opportunity here for algorithms to be used to come up with better measurements, right, to understand the extent of some form of discrimination or inequality, to try to come up with interventions that can help move the needle in the right direction um, and things like that. And so that's something that I'm really, really excited about, this positive use of algorithms for equity and for justice. How does Mechanism Design for Social Good go about its work and describe an area in which you're seeing the application? In terms of how we go about our work, um, what we do is we understand that equity and justice-driven work requires really truly understanding what the problems are. And you can't do that in like a computer science bubble. That just isn't going to happen. There is a working group specifically on inequality, and we are working closely with policymakers. We're working with organizations like Benefits Data Trust, which is a nonprofit organization that is working to make public benefits accessible to a wider range of the population, right? Because we know that there's a lot of barriers that people face. We're working with the state of California to understand what holistic allocations look like, right? Because right now, a lot of times what we do is we say, oh, someone is experiencing housing instability, let's try to help them there. Someone is experiencing, let's say, food insecurity, let's help them there. Education, you know, we think of it in this like very siloed way, but the reality is that people experience multiple forms of disadvantage all at once. So the solutions that we're bringing to the forefront should also be in recognition of that. And we don't always do that. And so we're working with the California Policy Lab to understand what would a holistic allocation even look like in this space? So ensuring that the research questions that we ask are driven by policy and practice, but then also making sure that the research that we do ends up feeding itself back into policy and practice. I am enjoying talking to you because you're bringing so much imagination to an area that is well known among the people who are doing it. But I tell you, this is a black box for most of society and it's impacting their lives in the most profound ways. And the horse is well out of the barn. Is there still time for us to change course and fix the mechanisms that are currently exacerbating inequality and inequity? My grandfather fought in the Ethiopian-Italian War. He died when he was quite old, actually. So I got to meet him and talk to him several times. And it was really interesting to me to see how he approached his contribution there. You know, it was really difficult for him. But he was like, look, we're fighting for something that we may not necessarily get to live and experience, right? And I think the struggles here are kind of similar, right? It's that, yes, we're pushing against the use of algorithms in this space, but we're pushing against decades and centuries of discrimination and injustice. that in my lifetime, you know, things will happen and I'll feel like that battle is won. But I think if we're all just kind of making sure that we're moving things in a positive direction, things will keep getting better. And so I try to maintain that perspective. You are certainly right. And as someone who has been in this fight for decades now, I must say this moment feels more ripe for change than any I have seen. 
This has been fascinating. Radiette, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Angela. Radiette Abebe is an assistant professor of computer science at the University of California, Berkeley, and co-founder of Black and AI. Technology is almost never inherently good or bad. It's all about how it's used, toward what end. As Terrence Wilkerson's story painfully illustrates, right now algorithms, machine learning, and artificial intelligence cause enormous harm to people society already marginalizes and discriminates against, people of color especially. Terrence sums up the problem perfectly. How are you going to see a person you can't even see? Those words lay down a challenge that Radiator Bebe is taking on. How can we use advanced technology with its ability to recognize patterns, not as a tool to further marginalize and oppress people, but as an instrument that helps create broad well-being and belonging? This is the opportune moment to push that question as the federal government, the private sector, and civil society have all made commitments to racial equity, the essential element for belonging. They must work together to rethink the design and applications of these technologies. Certainly, leaders have a responsibility to stop harms these tools cause, but that's only a starting point. Let's harness the power of our best technology to repair the harms of centuries of structural racism, expand opportunity, and build an equitable society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. We and our partners at Unfinished invite you to reflect and respond to this question. What is essential about you that you would hope algorithms could reflect? Submit your ideas at RadicalImagination.us or on social media using hashtag RadicalImagination and hashtag ThisIsUnfinished. Imagination was produced by Futuro Studios for PolicyLink. The Futuro Studios team includes Marlon Bishop, Andreas Caballero, Ruxandra Guidi, Stephanie LeBeau, Jess Avaringa, Julia Caruso, Leah Shaw Dameron, and Gabriela Baez. The PolicyLink team includes Glenda Johnson, Rachel Gashinga, Virtual Ramos, Eugene Chan, Fran Smith, Jacob Gulkashian, and Venice Dunn. Radical Imagination is supported by Omidyar Network, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, Pivotal Ventures, the Melinda Gates Company, and Unfinished. Our theme music is composed by Taka Yususawa and Alex Segura. And I'm your host, Angela Glover-Blackwell. Join us again next time. And in the meantime, you can find us online at radicalimagination.us. Remember to subscribe and share. Next time on Radical Imagination. Vaccine makers under pressure for the second day in a row after the White House says it backs waiving intellectual property rights. The patent industry and the COVID vaccine. That's next time on Radical Imagination. <laughs>